This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the third episode of season 12. Before we get into the story, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that there's a village in Perthshire, Scotland called Dull? That's a fairly comical place name. But the best part about it is that it's paired with a community called Boring in Clackamas County, Oregon, USA, and a local government area called Blandshire in the Riverina region of New South Wales, Australia. Dull, boring, and bland. Genius. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. There are two seasons in Scotland, June and winter. That was said by Billy Connolly. Listener Marty Shane requested this case via email. I hope I'm saying your surname correctly there, Marty. Marty is one of my Patreon members. We're in Old Meldrum this week, or Meldrum as it's known more commonly. It's a village in the Formantine area of Aberdeenshire, North East Scotland. I think it's pronounced Meldrum, but it could be Madrum based on a video I saw. Could also be former Tyne, I don't know. It's Scotland, I'm going to get some stuff wrong. I'm going to stick with Meldrum though. It's located 18 miles northwest of Aberdeen, 144 miles northeast of Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh, and 565 miles north and slightly west of London. Here are five quickfire facts about Old Meldrum. Number one. Old Meldrum was once the dominant settlement of the Geary, with 16 merchants operating out of the settlement in the late 17th century. Geary comes from the Gaelic word meaning place of roughness, but it's not spelt how you would think. I had to research this one. It's G-A-R-I-O-C-H, but I'm assured it's pronounced Geary. Number two, the village is home to one of Scotland's oldest distilleries. Founded in 1797, the popular Glengarry Distillery is the closest distillery to the city. It's only a half-hour drive from the centre. Number three, Old Meldrum is referred to as the Granary of Aberdeen for its production of high-quality barley. Number four, the Battle of Barra, or Battle of Inverurie, was fought in Old Meldrum in the early 1300s. The Scottish King Robert Bruce and his royal army claimed victory over the Scottish rebels led by John Comyn, Comyn, the third Earl of Buchan. And finally, number five, the annual Old Meldrum Sports and Highland Games take place in the village each June. First held in 1930, it features traditional events such as the Caber Toss as well as dance events and musical displays from various pipe bands. According to a 2020 estimate, Old Meldrum's approximate population is 3,120. Now before I start, I want to point out that although the episode is called The Murder of Claire Morris, she was not the only victim of the perpetrator in this truly perplexing story. She was the perpetrator's only murder victim, but this case has so many bewildering twists and turns beyond that tragedy. 
It's genuinely one of the most convoluted cases I've ever had to research and I found it difficult to fully understand and follow the chain of events while researching it. It might be a bit of a longer episode as a result because not only does it span three decades, it also takes place across various continents. I've done my best to simplify this timeline as best I can. As a result, some details may be missing or may have been omitted to prevent confusion and just to make the story easier to follow. If I have missed anything or put across some that you deem to be inaccurate, I can only apologise. This is the story to the best of my knowledge. I urge you to check my references, each of which is listed on BritishMurders.com. Without further ado, let me begin by introducing this episode's namesake, Claire Morris. Claire was born in the early 60s and was the eldest of two children born to her parents. Her younger brother Peter was welcomed to the world two years after Claire and the siblings shared a strong bond that would continue into adulthood. Information is limited regarding their parents, but as far as I can tell, they had a pretty standard upbringing in their Kent home. There was no doubt plenty of love and happiness in their lives, so much so that Claire's chosen career path was that of a healthcare worker. It wouldn't surprise me if one of her parents was in the same field. It's one of those careers that children tend to follow in the parents' footsteps with. A well-respected nurse, Claire's friendly yet thorough approach endeared her to not only her patients but to her colleagues as well. She was highly regarded and soon caught the eye of a man called Malcolm Webster who instantly took a shine to Claire. The two had crossed paths, as I'm sure many workers do in that industry, at some point in the early 90s, at which point Webster had only been back in the country for a year or two. Born in Wandsworth, Surrey on April 18, 1959, Webster had previously lived in Abu Dhabi, the capital city of the United Arab Emirates, after securing a role in a hospital there. Spending just over half a year as a nurse over there, Webster was let go by his employer after some serious allegations were made about him. One of the hospital's paediatric nurses, a woman called Elizabeth Brown, had reported Webster to the higher-ups after concerns were raised over his conduct. Elizabeth alleged that three children, all of whom were under the age of six and classed as disabled, had died whilst Webster was on duty. She claimed that their deaths were a direct result of Webster's actions and said that she believed he had conducted experiments on them, which led to cardiac arrests in each case. The first two children died without any action being taken, but within mere hours of the third child passing away, Webster was suspended before soon being relieved of his duties altogether. Elizabeth has since said of the allegations, He was suspected of harming some of the children, although nothing was proven. They rarely do post-mortem examinations in the United Arab Emirates because they don't believe in them. If someone dies, it's Allah's will. I tried looking into whether that's true, but came up short. If anyone knows, please let me know. I did read that the UAE is among a group of countries that adopted a virtual autopsy technique, along with the US, UK, Canada, Germany, Australia and Japan. Regardless, Webster's solicitor, John McLeod, has said the allegations were nothing more than that. Allegations. He said, The information, as I understand it, came from a disgruntled ex. They never formed the basis even of an allegation, let alone a charge. Therefore, we'll move swiftly on. Within a short time of meeting, Webster proposed to Claire, who accepted with glee. Webster was, if nothing else, a tremendous actor. Or liar, that's perhaps a more accurate way of describing him. 
He was a manipulator who put on a magnificent charm offensive when meeting someone new. He would go out of his way to make it seem like he was the most caring, the funniest and kindest man in the world. Spontaneously suggesting trips and surprising his partners with gifts, Webster enjoyed controlling all aspects of his relationships. His job as a nurse was used as a means of attempting to justify how caring and knowledgeable he was about people's health, which often led to him offering medication to his partners. A prime example of how controlling Webster was is how he persuaded Claire to amend her will in May 1992 so that it was more beneficial to him. He wanted to ensure that, should she suddenly die, he would greatly benefit in a financial sense. Sixteen months later, on September 3rd, 1993, the couple tied the knot at King's College Chapel in Aberdeen. Their marital home was East Catty College in Old Meldrum, but unbeknownst to Claire, she was repeatedly being controlled by Webster by way of being drugged. Nicking supplies from the hospital he worked at, Webster took to sedating his new wife with tranquilizers and various other medications. Based on what happened to Claire, it seems he was experimenting with dosages and seeing how she responded to them before putting his long-term nefarious plan in motion. Claire's mum, Betty, instantly took a dislike to Webster after he insulted her within moments of being introduced. She did an interview with the Scottish Sun a few years back and had this to say about him. I didn't like Malcolm right from the start. He wasn't the sort of person I'd have married. He was strange. You don't call your girlfriend's mother stupid when you've just met her. You're not exactly gonna endear yourself to your partner's mum by calling her stupid any point, let alone during the first time you meet her. It says a lot about Webster's personality. I wanted to gain a better understanding of how he became the person he was, so I looked into his childhood. It seems he had a penchant for starting fires as a kid, so much so that his friends called him Pyro. I want you to remember that as the story unfolds. Bizarrely, his parents were professionals. His mum was a nurse, which, as I mentioned earlier, likely influenced him to become one. His dad was well respected because he was the head of the fraud squad in the Metropolitan Police. Alexander Webster rose to the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent in the Met, which made the story of his son that much more perplexing. You wouldn't necessarily associate Webster's childhood with the cruel actions he went on to subject so many women to. You'd perhaps expect a turbulent and abusive upbringing, although, to be fair, there is limited information available about what his childhood were like. Heading back to our timeline, let's refresh our memory a little bit. Claire's will has been changed, she and Webster have got married, and he has several months' worth of sedative experiments under his belt. He's also taken out various life assurance policies payable upon Claire's death. With all that in place, Webster prepared for his plan's final step. In April 1994, Claire and Webster were involved in a car accident that miraculously left both of them uninjured. Telling her mum about it, Claire said Webster seemed very tired whilst at the wheel and that they'd veered off the road, leading to the car rolling over. It would have carried on rolling down a hill had it not been for a sturdy bush that brought the vehicle to an immediate halt. The incident wasn't reported to the police due to the lack of injuries sustained by the pair, and for all Claire knew, it was legitimately an accident caused by Webster's tiredness. Just a month later, in an almost carbon copy of that accident, Claire died after the couple's car, a Daihatsu Jeep, 
burst into flames after crashing into a field. Webster managed to escape the burning wreckage and was swiftly taken to Aberdeen Royal Hospital to be treated for neck and chest injuries. I believe that's the same hospital in which he worked. Maybe Claire did too. The crash occurred in the early hours of May 28th, just before 1am, on a road leading to the village of Tarves, Tarves, T-A-R-V-E-S. When other road users stopped to check on them, Webster reportedly told them he was the only person in the car. It was only after emergency crews, including the fire service, arrived at the scene and removed Claire from the vehicle that the truth about there being more than one person came to light. All Grampian police officers had to go on was Webster's word, and it appears as though he blamed a person riding a motorcycle as the reason the car swerved off the road. Webster said he was forced to avoid the motorcyclist and lost control of the jeep. With that, the officers appealed in the papers for the motorcyclist to come forward, but nobody did. The reason was no such person existed. Webster had made the story up. Here is the grim truth about what happened in those early hours. The previous evening, May 27th, Webster had once again sedated Claire to such a level that she was rendered completely unconscious. Using the cover of complete darkness that only the middle of the night offers, he placed her in the jeep's passenger seat and ensured it was fully reclined so that any passers-by could not see her. In the boot of the car, he placed three jerry cans, each of which was full to the brim with petrol. Happy that nobody was around to witness what was about to happen, Webster intentionally steered the car off the road and into a field, colliding gently with a tree. After doing so and freeing himself, he used the petrol cans to set the vehicle on fire, with Claire still inside. Just eight months into her marriage, Claire had been murdered by the one man she trusted the most. Worse still, her death was treated as nothing more than a tragic accident in which a supposedly grieving husband had lost the love of his life. Peter Morris had no reason to believe that the wailing man holding his hand at his sister's funeral was shedding nothing more than crocodile tears. Peter was being the lovely man he was and offering support to his brother-in-law, all the while having no idea that he was comforting the person responsible for murdering his sister. On the first anniversary of their marriage, September 3rd, 1994, you'd have thought a grieving husband would have perhaps visited his wife's grave and placed some flowers. Webster instead spent the evening in the company of a woman called Geraldine Oakley, whom he knew before Claire's death due to the two working together. Geraldine was a computer manager at NHS Grampian, and much like Claire, had crossed paths with Webster at work. Not long after killing Claire, Webster informed Geraldine about the tragic accident that had left him a widow. Offering her support, as any unknowing and good-intentioned person would, Geraldine said he could call her at any time should he want to talk about it. They met for a coffee a few times in the ensuing months before their night together that September, during which Webster was asking some uncomfortable questions about postmortems. He questioned Geraldine at length about the possibility of a second postmortem taking place and seemed rather worried at the prospect. So taken aback was Geraldine that she considered relaying her concerns to consultant pathologist Dr. James Grieve, but she never got around to it. Their sexual relationship would be kept a secret until Webster's trial decades later, but all that time she's had her suspicions that he was perhaps responsible in some way for Claire's death. 
By the mid-90s, Webster had moved out of the UK and returned to West Asia, this time settling in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Living in the nation's capital city of Riyadh, Webster worked for a USA-based healthcare company. He soon struck a strong yet long-distance bond with one of his colleagues, a woman called Brenda Grant. She was a quality analyst based in Kansas City, Missouri. The two were initially just friends who spoke frequently over the phone, but when Webster flew to the USA for a training course that lasted several weeks, their friendship developed into something more. Romance blossomed, and the divorce mummer three was always blown away by Webster's over-the-top gestures and spontaneous gifts. He went out of his way to show Brenda how much of a family man he could be by always making time for her kids as well as her, but she grew concerned he was trying to take over their lives. Showcasing his caretaker nature, Webster would often offer Brenda painkiller tablets, which he called tabbies, but she always refused. That's something she has since looked back on with relief, given what we know about Webster's drugging of his partners. The pair went their separate ways in 1996, but remained friends. Meanwhile, Webster had met another woman called Felicity Drum at a dinner party in Saudi. Felicity worked as an oncology nurse and therefore had a lot in common with Webster due to their similar professional fields. Originally from New Zealand, unless I'm mistaken, Felicity would end up living with Webster back in Aberdeen before they headed to the land of the Long White Cloud to get married. I can't say for sure whether Webster told Felicity about his previous marriage, but if he did, there's no doubt he explained away Claire's death as an accident. During their honeymoon, Webster was back to his old habit of sedating his partners. Felicity recalled her new husband making her a cup of tea before going to bed one evening. She woke up 36 hours later. Confronting Webster about it, he reportedly said to her, You would have died happy. It was one of several times during the honeymoon that she suspected Webster had drugged her. She recalled feeling groggy, suffering from double vision, and being unsteady on her feet after eating or drinking things prepared by him. The same pattern continued back in Aberdeen at the couple's marital home at Easter Letter College in the Aberdeenshire village of Dunacht. Again, if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. To make matters worse, Felicity continued to be unknowingly supplied with drugs even whilst pregnant with the couple's son. Remember Webster's nickname as a kid, Pyro? His love for starting fires clearly followed him into adulthood, as he would set a total of three house fires during his marriage to Felicity. The first occurred at the Easter Letter College on September 16, 1997, when some furniture was set alight. Thankfully, the fire didn't spread and nobody got hurt. This appears to be the only fire of the three that didn't have a motive. It wasn't set in an attempt to defraud an insurance company, nor was its purpose to kill Felicity. It's a real mystery, that particular house fire. The other two I'll come on to shortly. Between that incident and the following Christmas, Webster continued to drug Felicity whilst obtaining various insurance policies payable upon her death, just like he'd done with Claire. Several policies were made in both Scotland and New Zealand, effectively doubling the potential amount of money he would have received had Felicity not been a New Zealand national. On many of the applications, he forged Felicity's signature, so she wasn't aware of just how many claims he'd made, and in January 1998, she was persuaded to write a will. Of course, it was written entirely in Webster's favour. Everything Felicity owned would pass to her husband after her death. Talk about deja vu. 
The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Another allegation was made in 1998 regarding a fire that engulfed and destroyed the Shawporter storage building in Aberdeen's harbour area. Much like with the Abu Dhabi allegations, Webster denied any involvement, with his solicitor saying, Not only does he deny them, he has never been formally accused of any of them. These issues are not new. They have been well ventilated in the two years it took to prepare the case. They have not got to the stage where an allegation has been made. That quote obviously came about around the time of the murder trial. Regarding all the life insurance policies Webster took out when married to Claire, he made claims on each of those and is even said to have greatly exaggerated the value of some items he kept in the Shaw Porter storage facility that mysteriously burnt down. In total, Webster netted in excess of 200 grand, it's around 380 grand today, in insurance payouts in the aftermath of Claire's death. That's the most common figure quoted in the sources I used. The true figure may indeed be much higher. Some sources claim he spent it on other women, many of whom he saw simultaneously, whereas others claim he made lavish purchases, including a yacht and a Range Rover. Webster also continued to fraudulently claim a widow's pension even after marrying Felicity. Getting married in New Zealand may have allowed him to conceal it from the UK authorities, thereby allowing him to continue receiving the aforementioned income. Deciding in December of that year to move to New Zealand permanently, Webster and Felicity found a property on Norwood Road in the nation's largest city, Auckland, on its North Island. The thing is, the couple's finances were not sufficient to allow for the property purchase to fully go ahead. Webster was secretly siphoning money from his and Felicity's joint bank account and sending it to one held in his sole name. Felicity had deposited large sums of her own money into the joint account and had no idea they were in a far less healthy financial position than she thought as a result of that. The next month, the second of the three house fires was set in the Norwood Road property. Webster had stuffed some newspapers, which had been doused in petrol, through the letterbox and set them alight. Again, the fire miraculously didn't catch and nobody was harmed. Frustrated at that second failure, Webster set a third fire a month later, in February 1999, this time targeting Felicity's parents' home on Eversley Road. All five family members were in the home at the time, so that's Webster, Felicity, their infant son and Felicity's parents, and it was during the middle of the night on February 10th that Webster got out of bed to use the toilet, or so he said. The truth was that he headed to the family's living room and set fire to an armchair before returning to bed. The fire somehow remained localised, I don't know how this kept happening, and didn't spread further than the chair before ultimately dying down. The motive hasn't been confirmed, but logical deducement has led to people believing he set the two New Zealand fires in an attempt to destroy the subjects of purchase or postpone the settlement of funds on that Norwood Road property due to them not being able to afford it. Just two days after the fire at Felicity's parents' house, an attempt would be made on Felicity's life. As he had with Claire, Webster drugged Felicity before placing her in their car and heading out for a drive. Heading through Takapuna, a suburb on Auckland's North Shore, Webster intentionally drove the car across several lanes of a busy road and into a power pole passenger side first, or so he intended to. Full petrol cans had been placed in the boot, as had a scrunched-up newspaper and a lighter. 
Felicity managed to prevent the car from careening into the pole by suddenly grabbing the wheel at the last moment. Webster was perhaps surprised that she was not as sedated as he'd planned. When they came to a halt, Webster exited the vehicle and headed to the boot to retrieve the petrol cans. His sadistic plan was thwarted by the police, though, who quickly arrived at the scene and sealed it off. Whilst treating her injuries, the doctors working on Felicity soon realised that a strong sedative was flowing through her system. At that time, no charges were held against Webster, owing in part to his persistent failure to attend any court hearings. The couple appear to have made amends after that and continued their married life, but in 2004, Webster entered into a bigamous relationship with a woman called Simone Banaji, also referred to as Simone Marie Adams in some sources, whom he met at a hospital in the Argyle and Butte town of Oban, Western Scotland. It was there where Simone lived and worked, as I believe did Webster. My understanding is that, although he remained married to Felicity, he was living and working in Scotland, so perhaps they didn't make as much of an amendment as I thought. You can probably see why I got a bit confused researching this one. A lot of information is missing, so I'm doing my best to piece it together for you. It seems as though the sole reason Webster entered into a relationship with Simone was to persuade her to marry him and worm his way into becoming the sole benefactor of her estate. Concealing his marriage to Felicity from Simone, well, that was just step one. The next step was to garner sympathy with her because the end goal was for her to accept his marriage proposal. How did he garner sympathy, I hear you ask? He first pretended to have suffered a heart attack before then claiming to be terminally ill. Going so far as to shave his head to further the illusion, Webster told Simone, and I assume Felicity, that he'd been diagnosed with chronic lymphatic leukemia and was receiving chemotherapy treatment. The truth was that he was actually in good health. Simone was manipulated into asking Webster to move into her urban home with her in 2005 and she also reportedly lent him various large sums of money throughout their relationship. That same year, Brenda Grant reconnected with Webster after he began sending her emails out of the blue. She said, Malcolm and I had traded a few emails during 2005 and then sort of out of the blue I received an email from him suggesting a holiday together. I wasn't involved with anyone at this time and I thought it was a wonderful idea. Webster being Webster, things weren't as straightforward as Brenda had hoped. He persistently got on at her about taking out some travel insurance so, you know, just in case she died during the trip to Paris, he wanted the payout. She had no idea he was still married or that he was simultaneously seeing Simone. Webster is said to have pretended to be extremely ill during the trip, further playing on the false leukemia angle, with Brenda saying on reflection many years later, I'm just thankful to be alive. In June 2006, Grampian police began investigating Webster's past on the back of a tip from Jane Drum, one of Felicity's sisters, who was in the country on a business trip. Jane was ultra-concerned about how Felicity had been treated by her husband and felt the right thing to do was to inform the police. She told a police officer she met in London of her belief that Webster had killed Claire and tried to kill Felicity. Further concerns were raised by Felicity's dad, Brian, after he discovered just how many insurance policies Webster had taken out in his daughter's name. 
the murdering conman was set to net around 1.9 million New Zealand dollars, which at the start of 2006 would have equated to roughly 735 British pounds. It's 1.2 million pounds in today's money. That September, Webster proposed to Simone. There were no divorce proceedings going on at that time, so it's not as if Webster was splitting up with Felicity, which would have allowed him to marry Simone. He wanted to marry a bigamously, but was legally prevented from doing so. Not knowing he was already married, Simone accepted Webster's proposal, given she thought he was terminally ill. As he had with Claire and Felicity, he persuaded Simone to make a will in his favour, which she no doubt saw no issue with doing, given his perceived ill health. After 18 months or so of investigating Webster's background, Simone was warned by the police about her fiancé. She was given some documents in January 2008 outlining the concerns they held over his past in Scotland and New Zealand, which left her gobsmacked and heartbroken. She couldn't believe what they suspected her fiancé of doing, because to her, it was so unlike him. Once more, he'd given Simone the perception that he was this one-of-a-kind, humble and wonderful man, when the reality was quite the opposite. She has since explained how she once discovered the life jacket she used for boating had been tampered with. Realising just how lucky she was to escape that relationship with her life, Simone has retrospectively said, I have pretty much no doubt that the boat was the way it was going to go. She's referring to how Webster would likely have killed her or attempted to. By March 2008, Operation Field was launched, the objective of which was to bring Webster down. To start with, officers sent hundreds if not thousands of letters to homes within a five-mile radius of the field where Claire's death occurred. The probe came on the back of new forensic evidence which confirmed Claire had temazepam in her system when she died. A sample of her liver had been re-analysed using modern forensic techniques not available at the time of her death. Temazepam belongs to a group of medicines called benzodiazepines. Its primary use is to treat insomnia, which Claire didn't have. She had not been prescribed the drug, which led to detectives becoming concerned that she had been drugged and that her death was not the accident everyone initially thought it was. In total, the police took over a thousand statements from people located all over the world and finally, they had enough evidence to arrest Webster in early 2009 on suspicion of murder, attempted murder and intending to bigamously marry. It would take two years for the legal teams to gather their respective evidence, with Webster's murder trial finally commencing on February 1st, 2011 at Glasgow's High Court. I didn't actually realise this, but in Scotland, they use 15 jurors rather than the standard 12. There were plans to axe the historic 15-person jury in Scottish criminal trials about a decade or so ago, but Scottish ministers ditched them. On March 7th, an application was made by the prosecution to add some last-minute additional witness testimony. At the time of Claire's murder, a man called Mr Hardy worked on a farm. Now, the farm is where the car crashed into it. It was one of the farm's fields. He testified that on May 17th, 1994, 11 days before the crash, he recalled spotting someone in the field having a look around. Mistakenly believing him to be a veterinary official from the Department of Agriculture, Mr Hardy confronted the man and asked him to leave. The farm was under investigation by the Department of Agriculture, hence why he thought that's who the man was representing. It were only after seeing photographs of Webster on the news that he realised the man he'd seen was Claire's husband. 
Mr Hardy had moved out of the area a year before the trial began, but his former employer in 1994, Mr Simmers, relayed his testimony as a Crown witness. If Mr Hardy's testimony was to be believed, it meant that Webster had surveyed the field almost two weeks before crashing the car into it, revealing an unprecedented level of premeditation. Stephen Jowett, a crash reconstruction expert, explained to the jury that the car crash had all the hallmarks of being staged. There was nothing to physically prevent Claire from getting out of the car if she'd been conscious. He said, It is highly likely that the vehicle was steered down the slope into the wooded area from a relatively low speed. It is highly unlikely that the vehicle entered the wooded area as the result of a high-speed veer. That is to say that this physical evidence does not support any interpretation of the version of events given by Mr Webster. He also went on to explain how highly unlikely it was that the vehicle caught fire as a consequence of any impact damage generated in the incident. Despite overwhelming evidence, Webster denied all of his charges when he took the stand that May. The jury eventually retired on May 19th, three months into the trial, and returned within four hours. They found Webster guilty of all charges, meaning he was to be convicted of murder, attempted murder, theft, fraud and attempted bigamy. It was one of the longest trials in Scottish legal history. Judge Lord Bannatyne handed Webster a life sentence on July 5th with a 30-year minimum. In his closing statement he said, This murder was a central plank of a plan to obtain money. This was a murder of a wholly exceptional kind, rarely seen in these courts. It also was a murder which was cold-blooded, brutal and callous. You are a danger to women. On the back of his conviction, the Nursing and Midwifery Council panel understandably struck Webster from the nursing register. Now you might think the story ends there, but there are still a fair few things to go over in the aftermath of Webster being sent to prison. Firstly, in June 2011, so a month before Webster was sentenced, Claire's family applied to Aberdeenshire Council to have her headstone changed. The stone and plot had been bought by Webster, with him choosing the following words to be engraved upon it. With loving thoughts of my dear wife Claire J. Webster, BSC, died 27th May 1994, aged 32. There was also a quote from the Shakespeare play The Merchant of Venice on the lower half of the stone. The council at first told Claire's family that they were unable to remove the gravestone for fear of facing prosecution due to Webster's permission being required. So they actually had to get his permission to remove the gravestone even though he'd killed her. By August though the headstone was successfully removed after the council backed down. A new headstone was subsequently placed at the Tarvis Cemetery in May 2012 on the 18th anniversary of Claire's murder. In October 2013, Webster launched a bid for him to be buried in the same plot as Claire, but Aberdeenshire Council rejected it and declared his plot contract as void on the back of his murder conviction. A council spokesperson said, The murder conviction against Malcolm Webster has rendered his contract with the council as relating to the lair at Tarvis void. As such, he would have no right to be buried in the same lair as Claire Morris. Having previously appealed against his conviction, Webster was informed in December 2013 that it had been rejected by the Court of Appeal. They agreed that he had not been the victim of a miscarriage of justice. 
He supposedly dropped his appeal in March 2014, but another source stated he launched a fresh bid later that year to the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. The SCCRC is a Scottish body which reviews alleged miscarriages of justice in criminal cases and has the power to refer a case back before senior judges for a fresh look. That appeal was not taken on by the SCCRC, something confirmed by them in February 2016. A spokesperson said, The Commission's review has concluded and this case has not been referred to the High Court. This case was featured in a 2014 three-part ITV drama series starring Sheridan Smith as Claire. Her brother Peter said the actress portrayed his sister perfectly. He even met producers and provided them with Claire and Webster's wedding video, which was reenacted in the series. I've not watched it, but it sounds like it was well done. There are plenty of books and documentaries based on this case. If you want to learn more about it, go check them out. The most well-known documentary is probably Channel 4's two-part series called Married to a Psychopath. Now, I have to end this week on a sad note. This sort of ties the story together, but it's just not nice. Peter, who did so much to raise funds and awareness in the aftermath of Webster's conviction, sadly passed away in December 2019. He suffered a horrific injury while taking part in a walk from Claire's grave to Holyrood. His right foot got blistered so badly that he ended up in hospital, but even so, he carried on his journey. He was attempting to gather 6,000 signatures for a petition calling for a foundation to help crime victims. As someone with diabetes, Peter's foot injuries worsened to the point where gangrene began to set in, which led to part of his right leg being removed. Dying at the age of 55, Peter left behind his wife of 35 years, Christine. She said, My darling Peter passed away peacefully with us all around him. As a family, we will take strength from each other and those around us. And that was the story of the murder of Claire Morris. Thanks again, Marty Shane, for requesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. E.T. left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I recently started listening to podcasts and stumbled onto this one while searching around for things to listen to. The ones I have listened to so far have been really good, given a brief overview of the cases. I like that they are not too long, so I can listen to the whole case in all one go. Can I suggest the case of Maureen Dutton, who was murdered in her home in Naughty Ash, just around the corner from Ken Dodd's house in 1961? I've added that case to my list for you, E.T., Tracy Price left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Hi Stu, stumbled across your podcast and have become addicted. I listen whilst working as a gardener and it makes the day go so much faster. If possible, please consider covering the murder of Gabby Chapman, who was killed in July 2010 in Rugby by her estranged husband, a huge CSI fan who thought he'd planned it meticulously. However, as the saying goes, there's no such thing as the perfect crime. Take care and thanks again. I've added that case to my list for you, Tracy. Helen left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Just discovered this podcast and I'm hooked. Plus, being a Yorkshire-born woman living in South Australia, absolutely love Stu's accent. And finally, Hayley Meadows left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Recently came across this podcast and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Incredibly well done. As one true crime podcast, they tend to drone on and on, but Stuart's deliverance is absolutely spot on. I started listening about two weeks ago and I've binged every day. Also, I love the fact you have used your little one as a voiceover. Really cute. 
I do have a recommendation to cover. It's about a girl I attended school with. It was all over the news. Keep it up, mate. It's a great podcast. If you send an email to contact@britishmurders.com, Haley, I'll add it to my spreadsheet for you. Thank you, E.T., Tracy, Helen and Haley, for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podjesser or BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Someone left me a review last week with a very silly name and I didn't even realise it and I read it out as it was. Sorry about that. I genuinely had no idea. Someone trolled me and they won. Well done. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time, and you will get some thank you goodies for signing up as well. Hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Nicole Rising, Gemma Hodinot, Kay Musk, Simon Lamb, and Miriam Klaus Blank. If I'm pronouncing any of those wrong, I do apologise. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. That's what Kelly did. She bought me a beer on there. Thanks for that. The message left was, cheers, thanks for keeping me sane at work. Keep your case suggestions coming. Just email me contact at britishmurders.com or message me via social media. When I cover the episode, you will get a shout out for your trouble. And that does us for another week, another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.